You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. U.S. Marshals Service sustains a data breach. Blind Eagle is a fish hawk. Dish continues to work toward recovery. OneNote attachments are used to distribute CACBOT. Ben Yellen has analysis on the Supreme Court's hearing on a Section 230 case. Mr. Security Answer Person John Pescatori has thoughts on ChatGPT. And CISA Director Easterly urges vendors to make software secure by design. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. A data breach has been reported at the U.S. Marshals Service. NBC News correspondent Tom Winter broke the news in a tweet thread yesterday evening. Drew Wade, a Marshals Service spokesperson, said, The affected system contains law enforcement-sensitive information, including returns from legal process, administrative information, and personally identifiable information pertaining to subjects of USMS investigations, third parties, and certain USMS employees. The February 17th discovery of what Wade calls a ransomware and data exfiltration event affecting a standalone USMS system led to the disconnect of the affected system from the network. The USMS is actively investigating the attack as a major incident, bleeping computer rights. Justice Department officials were briefed last Wednesday. The breach is said to have left the Witness Security Program, better known as the Witness Protection Program, untouched, USA Today reported in an update this morning. BlackBerry has published a report on a threat actor, Blind Eagle, also known as APTC-36. It's a South American cyber espionage operation that's been operating against targets in Ecuador, Chile, Spain, and Colombia since at least 2019. Its most recent activity has been directed primarily at organizations in Colombia, including health, financial, law enforcement, immigration, and an agency in charge of peace negotiation in the country. The come-on in Blind Eagle's phishing emails depends upon fear and urgency. Recipients of the email are told they have obligaciones pendientes, that is, outstanding obligations, with some of the communications telling the recipients that their tax payments are 45 days in arrears. The email's fish hooks are usually malicious links. The phishing is conceptually simple. 
Blind Eagle has persisted with it simply because it works. Dish continues to grapple with what it characterizes as an internal system error. The record notes that no specific information has so far come to light that would support early speculation that the incident arose from a cyber attack. TechCrunch has been in touch with the company, who said that Dish TV, Sling TV, and wireless service were all back up. Investigation and remediation are in progress. A spokesman said, however, some of our corporate communication systems, customer care functions, and websites were affected. Our teams are working hard to restore affected systems as quickly as possible and are making steady progress. Dish's website this morning was still displaying the notice it's had up since the weekend. We are experiencing a system issue that our teams are working hard to resolve. Armor Blocks describes a phishing campaign that's using OneNote file attachments to distribute the CACBOT banking trojan. The phishing emails purport to come from a trusted vendor and ask the recipient to open a OneNote attachment that appears to be an invoice. Armor Blocks says, Upon opening the email, victims are presented with a simple-bodied email designed to look like a follow-up to a previous discussion. As victims read this language-based email, they are prompted to open the attachment to review the details of the order to which it seems has already been completed. The file will then execute VB script code, which will result in the installation of CACBOT. The SpyCast podcast has an interview with The Washington Post's Shane Harris, who encapsulates how conventional wisdom about Russia's hybrid war went astray. He said, At the outset, I believe that what we were looking at was probably a pretty swift Russian victory. They would come in, they would decapitate the central government in Kiev in the first 72 hours, and it would be bloody, and it would be violent, but that Russia would prevail because they were deemed to have the superior military in terms of technology experience numbers. Turns out, all those things were spectacularly wrong. The same goes for cyberspace. Check out SpyCast on the CyberWire network and hear more about the conduct and prospects of Russia's war. CISA director Jen Easterly spoke yesterday at Carnegie Mellon University and outlined steps she urged vendors to take in order to introduce more inherent security into their products. One of her conclusions was that the burden of security shouldn't fall on the consumer. Since she was speaking at a university, she framed the issues in ways that might suggest ways in which advanced students might shape their studies and research to contribute. In particular, she offered four questions that are worthy of more general consideration. First, she asked... Could you move university coursework to memory-safe languages? As an industry, we need to start containing and eventually rolling back the prevalence of C and C++ in key systems and putting a real emphasis on safety. Second, could you weave security through all computer software coursework? Third, how can you help the open-source community? And finally, could you find a way to help all developers and all business leaders make the switch? So, memory-safe coding is a technical, practical, and business issue. It will take a push across all those areas to make software safer and more secure. Coming up after the break, 
Ben Yellen has analysis on the Supreme Court's hearing on a Section 230 case. Mr. Security Answer person John Pescatori has thoughts on ChatGPT. Stay with us. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Security answer person. Mr. Security answer person. Hi, I'm John Pescatori, Mr. Security answer person. Our question for today's episode You spent a lot of time as a Gartner analyst. If you were doing a Gartner cybersecurity hype cycle today, where would you put the OpenAI ChatGPT chatbot that is getting so much press? Well, that's a timely question. I actually just used the ChatGPT chatbot via the New York Times to write my wife a romantic Valentine's Day card in the style of a pirate. She was not impressed. Next year, I will go back to buying her roses. Okay, let me do some splaining first. Unless you've been totally off the grid, you've probably heard some level of hype about OpenAI and ChatGPT. If not, Google it for detailed information, but it is essentially an example of what is called generative AI. Here's the one-line explanation a consulting firm McKinsey published for corporate executives. Generative AI describes the algorithms, such as ChatGPT, that can be used to create new content, 
including audio, code, images, text, simulations, and videos. One more short definition for those not familiar with Gardner Hype Cycles, which Gardner started in 1995, and one of the more fun Gardner research notes I did over my 14 years there. A Gardner Hype Cycle tracks and predicts technology issues from inception, or trigger point, to peak of overinflated expectations, into the trough of disillusionment, then up the slope of enlightenment, and for some, but not all, to reach the plateau of productivity. In August 2022, the Gardner Emerging Technologies hype cycle had generative AI at that initial trigger point. Over the years, AI has mostly been trapped in the trough of disillusionment, but ChatGPT actually passed the Turing test, fooling human readers into thinking they were chatting with another human. The public release of a website last November demonstrating the technology in various ways has led to an explosion of hype. From a cybersecurity perspective, there are two major things to think about. One, how will it be used against us, but also, two, how can we use it against the bad guys? First, a telling point to internalize. The workflow of AI is always, one, human experts enter constraints and requirements, two, AI lines of code, mostly written by humans, creates a bunch of stuff, and then three, humans evaluate and select the useful stuff. Already, you can see how ChatGPT can be used to make it much easier to craft more real-sounding phishing messages and even simple malicious executables. This is much the way cloud computing made it easier for bad guys to launch distributed denial-of-service attacks. But cloud-based DDoS also made it easier to block DDoS. And in that case, generative AI is going to follow that same trend because in the hands of skilled cybersecurity folks, it will be useful for faster generation of IOCs that are more than just glorified signatures, and also more useful tools for recognizing phishing text and malware created by generative AI. Imagine if on the good guy side, software development and pipeline platforms used generative AI to make sure all code did not contain any of the OWASP top code or API vulnerabilities before allowing check-in of that software. That would be some real movement up the slope of enlightenment. So to finally directly answer your question, Today, I put generative AI used by bad guys at the peak of overinflated expectations, and it's used by good guys just starting off from the trigger point. As in chess, the bad guys have the white pieces and usually get to go first. But the first mover in chess does not always win. It is really only a slight advantage, and difference in skills between players is the more accurate determinant of who will most likely win. The bottom line? Like all technology, generative AI can be a force multiplier when skilled experts put it to use— or it can simply be a noise generator when unskilled users are at the controls. Use the hype over OpenChat GPT to make sure your management understands the need for machine language understanding and skills in your security staff. Also, update your security awareness materials to users to emphasize that caution and clicking should be based on the consequences of the action, not just the believability of the email. My prediction is that even as fast as things seem to be moving, in February 2024, we will probably not be using generative AI to send our significant others Valentine's Day messages, or they will not be our significant others in 2025. Mr. Security Answer Person. Thanks for listening. I'm John Pescatori, Mr. Security Answer Person. Mr. Security Answer Person. 
Mr. Security Answer Person with John Pescatori airs the last Tuesday of each month right here on the CyberWire. Send your questions for Mr. Security Answer Person to questions at thecyberwire.com. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, I know you recently uh, spent a uh, just a scintillating afternoon uh, listening to Supreme Court oral arguments in the Gonzalez versus Google case, which uh, has to do with Section 230 here. Uh, before we jump into what the Supreme Court had to say, just a quick overview. What is at stake here, Ben? So there are actually two cases here, uh, Gonzalez and Tomnev ver, uh, versus Twitter. Mm-hmm. For legal purposes, the cases are identical. Uh, it's victims or the families of victims of terrorist attacks suing online platforms for aiding and abetting uh, terrorism through their use of algorithms. The Twitter case turns more on the specific definition of aiding and abetting, which is not as relevant for our purposes. Mm-hmm. So. That's why we're focusing on Gonzalez v. Google, which is really about how far immunity under Section 230 extends to the activities of these big tech platforms. Hmm. So the allegation uh, on behalf of Gonzalez's family, Gonzalez was a young lady who was killed in the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris, is that YouTube and its parent company, Google, bear some responsibility for these acts of terrorism because of their algorithm that recommends videos. So when you search ISIS videos on YouTube and you watch one of them, YouTube will actively recommend, at least this is the allegation, the next video based on what you've already watched. And in that respect, they are aiding and abetting terrorists. Mm -hmm. Now, Section 230 provides immunity to these companies for third-party content posted on the website. So both parties agree that you can't sue Google or YouTube or, or Google as its parent company for the fact that ISIS videos exists on, uh, exist on YouTube. Okay. But the argument here is can you sue them for this sort of recommendation scheme? And that turns on the question uh, as to whether in recommending these videos, YouTube is acting simply as a publisher and is just organizing the videos in kind of a content-neutral way Or if this is an act of creative content, this is something that YouTube itself has created. The counsel for Gonzalez argued that the specific thumbnails that are created for these recommended videos are a mixed creation. It's the third party that has created the video, but it is Google and YouTube that have created the thumbnail and that they should be liable uh, or they should not have immunity under Section 230 because they created that that thumbnail. And put it in front of the viewer. And put it in front of the viewer through their algorithm. Okay. The justices were very skeptical of that argument, uh, I think for both legal and practical reasons. The practical reasons is that all of these tech companies would then panic about any algorithmic decision that they'd make, including ones that seem completely innocuous. Mm. Uh, so one of the examples they gave is, what if in a search engine... Google simply organized the results not by any algorithm, but alphabetically. If there were no immunity shield, people like me with the last name of Yellen could sue for uh, economic damages because my name always turned up last in the search. Mm. 
And they think that that would be a bad result for uh, these these internet companies. It would stifle creative content, uh, et cetera. Mm. So they are very wary about uh, cutting against Section 230 immunity for something that, at least to a layperson, doesn't seem like content that Google itself created. The counsel for Google made an argument that was similarly poorly received by many of the justices. Hmm. Their argument is that not only should that content-neutral algorithm, where you're simply creating an algorithm based on the videos that somebody has watched, not only should that still confer immunity on the company, but even in an extreme example where YouTube designed an algorithm specifically to promote terrorism, to promote ISIS videos, even in that extreme circumstance, there should be a a liability shield because it's still just third-party content. Even if you are designing an algorithm that promotes ISIS videos, it's ISIS itself that created the videos, and therefore Google shouldn't face any sort of legal consequences even in that extreme circumstance. Mm. And the justices were pretty skeptical of that argument as well. Uh, I think they are trying... Uh, and sometimes we're asking really probing questions to determine where that line is. Yeah. What, what, where, what did we hear from any of the individual justices here? So Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I think, were particularly concerned about the practical effects of ending this immunity and what it would do for the industry. And so if I had to guess, they are going to come down more on the side of broad immunity for these big tech platforms. And that's really the status quo. Lower court cases have held that immunity under Section 230 extends to a lot of the sort of organizing activities that these platforms engage in uh, when they're deciding which videos to put at the top of the list, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Justice Jackson, who is uh, the newest justice and one of the more liberal justices, I think it's going to go in the other direction. She was taking a very textualist approach and was looking at the original purpose of Section 230, which concerned taking down third-party content or decisions about whether to take down third-party content. And since this case, when we're talking about algorithms and recommendations, doesn't relate to a direct decision about removing third-party content, I think she would not have Section 230 immunity apply to these types of activities. So I think she would be one vote in favor of Gonzalez. Hmm. The remaining justices are kind of in the murky middle where through really interesting, I think intelligent questions, we're trying to engage in a line drawing exercise and they did it through a bunch of different hypotheticals. Uh, So with the attorney for Gonzalez, they were talking about a scenario in which somebody goes into a bookstore and asks for a book related to sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are directed, based on that question that they ask, to a table full of books about sports. Yeah. If this were an internet transaction, would that confer immunity on the equivalent of the bookstore here? Uh, and this really goes back to some of the original algorithms we saw in the 90s, like with Amazon. Mm. Uh, you bought this, will you like that? Uh, and so I think justices were skeptical of not extending immunity to those very basic publishing functions of here's something we think you want to see, not based on our own ideological desire of what we want you to see, but based on what you have previously searched for. Mm. But there are kind of a parade of hypotheticals on the other side too. Uh, the main one, which I already discussed, is what if 
Google created a an algorithm uh, that specifically promoted terrorism. Justice Sotomayor came up with, I think, a really good hypothetical that was very difficult for the attorneys to answer. What if there was a dating site that created a discriminatory algorithm so they wouldn't match black users with white users, for example? Hmm. Would that dating service have immunity because ultimately it's the third parties, the people who created the profiles, who have submitted the content? Right. Uh, the dating service would just be engaging in that kind of organizational publishing function. So I think the justices in the middle uh, were having a really hard time of figuring out that exact line between acting as a publisher and acting as the creator of content. Uh, so it, it makes it really difficult to handicap where they're going to come down in this case. Well, time will tell, and we certainly will keep an eye on it. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.